I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. Uh, right, let's go into it. Hello and welcome to the Fear of Podcast about the overlap between comedy and horror. My name is Sarah Morgan. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, my guest this week is David Quantic. Hello. Hello, David Quantic is a comedy writer. Yes, author. Put a question mark. Question? <laughs> <laughs> Did my voice go up at the end? It's comedy writer. Comedy writer. Um, we should have written this down. Uh, he's written on all the good things which we are definitely going to get to. But also, you're here to talk about your new novel, which is called All My Colours Without a U. Yes, that's right. What was the choice with the no U, David Quantic? Well, there's, there's no choice because I get a lot. A lot of people, including an actual publisher, complain about it, but it's set in America mm. and it's about a book called All My Colours. So if mm. it's an American book, there's no you in it. Excellent. Um, I've read it and it's uh, brilliant. As you know, I'm a fan. Thank you. I sent you some kind. gushing emails. That... You can find Sarah's review on Amazon under the name of <laughs> Murder Satan 12. <laughs> Not a fake name. 15. <laughs> I've never met this man. 48. Real sock puppet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now it's good. I've only got four reviews, which yeah. is a bit depressing. Book. Oh, I don't know. I've got no. lots of friends who don't care about my book. Yeah. Well, and we're barely friends. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> after, after that that balances out. I mean, I like your books. <laughs> yeah, let's not go too far. Yeah. The thing I love about it is it's a, it's a genre book. It's a horror novel. It's nasty and for that. And it's got the air of lots of horror novels that I'm a fan of. Because uh, I've had lots of jobs in mm. writing and I've done ev- you know, I've done lots of different things. Mm. And I'm sure you get this. When you have an idea sometimes, you know, even if it's comedy, you think, I've got an idea, man thinks bowling ball is his mother. Right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, it's probably not a movie. Might be a sketch. Yeah. Could be a radio. And you go through it and, you, and this was like, a man, this is the story of the book, mm-hmm. a man realises he can remember a book that no one else has heard of told it to a friend, and he said, this is a great idea, and other people. And it was like, well, what is it? And I just thought, for some reason, because I thought, I remember the reason, because <laughs> there's a Stephen King book, one under the name of Richard Bachman, called Thinner. Mm. And I thought, this is a relentless story, because what happens? He thinks of the book, he writes the book. There are consequences. That's it. There's no B-plot. There's no minor characters. Yeah. He writes it. Some stuff happens. And the only book I could think of like that was Thinner by mm. Richard Bachman, in which a man is cursed by a gypsy to get thin, and he gets thin. Mm. The end. Relentlessly through Relentlessly our, thin. Yeah. And then, you know, that's it. And it's a brilliant yeah. book. There are no last chances or anything. And I thought, well, what if it was a Stephen King novel? Mm. And it just all fell into place after that. It was just, oh, what if the man is a is a tosser? <laughs> What if he's a failed writer? Because that's the kind of person who would steal someone's idea. Yeah. And what if the book was a woman? And that was the thing I did. Not was a woman, was by a woman. <laughs> but actually, or is it actually? Is the book a woman? And then it was like, well, what if is it by a woman? And then you can bring in a whole kind of, I don't want to say me too, because it's set in the seven, but you can bring in a whole kind of thing about that. And then it was just, oh, yeah. And everything, it just opened little doors. And then it was like, so it's this book. And it was so, e- I hate to say it, but it was so easy to write. Really? 
Yeah, it was just like somebody over my shoulder who was better at writing than me saying, do that. It, went, it came through, you literally came through, because there's, be- I mean, as if you're interested in, if you're a writer or you're interested in writing or the writing process, one of the things that's wonderful about it is that it, it uses all the tropes of being a struggling writer of how hard it is to write and find the muse and all those kind of things as horror tropes. He uses them as horror tropes. There's sort of horrible scenes of him writing this book over days and days and days. And he's, I mean, I don't want to say too much about what, you know, but there's the sweaty dirtiness sitting at his desk, not remembering how he's eaten, wearing a nappy, can't leave his desk because he's got to write this book. And it's written as a, a horror story. It's, Really it's weird smart, because yeah. none of that was intentional. Really? It was just... I've misunderstood the book. <laughs> oh I think it's kind of... I hate saying subconscious, but the thing yeah. is, I was broke when I had the idea and I really needed some money. So it was a bit ironic it took the book two and a half years to come out. <laughs> um, but yeah, I wrote it really quickly. So maybe that was in my mind. I yeah. thought, right, it's a Stephen King novel. He tosses them off. I'm going And I wrote it in three months, I think. Really? And so I think that's probably in my mind. But yeah... A lot of people have said that writing a book is like basically having a massive dump. And I've kind of literally put that in the book. Not literally, literally, but there's an element of toilets. Well, yes. Or, or, but also it's that sort of, that, that very, the sort of preciousness of the way people talk about creating a novel that's a bit like, oh, it's like childbirth. And actually childbirth is disgusting and horrible and sweaty and all that stuff. And there's the elements of that in it, the way he sort of produces this book as if it's been, as you say, whispered to him by someone else. I was shocked once I read a thing from John Favreau who said writing a film should take a week. And then he basically said, but you'll have thought about it for months. Yeah. And there is this kind of thing that every day you sit down with your peacock feather and write yeah. the, and then you take a month off <laughs> and write cat. And, then come back. <laughs> and there's, yeah, there are, there are two or three kinds of writer, and definitely one of them is the kind of person who has an idea and writes it. Mm. And you often find out what a book is, what the story of a book is when you've written it. Interesting. So did you outline it much when you were... I did outline it, and it is yeah. quite similar, except there's one bit when Todd, the evil hero, has just written the book, and he goes to meet an agent in New York, and he looks terrible because he's been locked in a room. But I changed it round because it was a great scene, but mm. it didn't fit in the story. I was mm. too lazy to change it. But t- tell me about Todd, because he's a fantastic cunt, I'm going to say, on my own podcast. Yeah, that's He's a fantastic was... cunt, and therefore a lot of fun to watch terrible things happen to. Yeah, I just thought it... I think... I don't know. It was a bit of revenge on writers mm. and this whole kind of, oh, you know, I'm a genius and, you know, the writing process. And is that because I was a journalist and still am and mm. because I come from television and radio where you write things quickly, I suppose it's a kind of innate contempt for people who talk about the craft of writing. Yes. You see uh, it as a magical, mystical process rather than a job that you do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it, there is no such thing as magic. Therefore, it's not magical. Yeah. But there's brilliant bits in it. But, yeah, so I wanted to write the kind of bloke who plays it being a writer who basically has a big glass of whiskey and smokes and talks about Norman Mailer (laughs) and is thick as pig shit. And and he does all the things. So it's like you've got to hate him. So all these things that he does, you know, he's an adulterer. He's, well, unfaithful is the same thing. He just does lots of things that are very bad and dislikable. But mainly he's vain and arrogant and thinks he's great. So it was fun, and he's weak, so it was fun to mm. punish him. Just realise that basically you can just treat him like a rag doll and slap him against the wall yeah. and all that kind of thing. 
And that's the, that's that is that is the, uh, the the fun of the story and what happens if you just want to see him unravel slowly. You've 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 set the wheels in motion. It's interesting what you say about magic though, because I think that's the thing about all magic tricks are rubbish when you know how they're done. Yeah. And, and the 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 magic of magic is someone presenting this sort of very boring thing like swallowing a sword is a man or a woman sticking a sword down their neck. There's no trick to it. It's just a horrible thing that you teach yourself to do. Same with writing. The magic is kind of in. I can't believe it. It's like a lot of people saying now in the old days before CGI, mm. seeing a film where you know somebody blows up nine million planes or a man jumps through yeah. a flaming hoop into a diving board is really exciting because you know it was a real man doing it or real things blowing yeah. up. Whereas much as we all enjoy the recent Game of Thrones, it was a cartoon with people shouting at a green wall. I'm so, I'm so glad. We, did we both watch it last night? We <laughs> watched it last night. It was absolutely brilliant. It was uh, for, for the listener, when the, I'm not sure this, when this is coming up, but the listener, last night was the Battle of Winterfell. Uh, it was it was very uh, dark. <laughs> and, dark and fuzzy. And, and fuzzy. There was a lot of uh, very bad military s- strategy. <laughs> yeah, I used to see a thing on Twitter and I got a bit annoyed about it. I was like, mate, Cheer up, have a wank. It's just, <laughs> I was like, why wasn't this tactical decision made? It's like, I don't know, because they're fighting giant, they're fighting killer zombies with a giant ice-breathing dragon. Yeah, I tell you why they didn't do it is because why they didn't have any military strategy because the coolest bit about it is when a load of people with flaming torches walk into a dark and you see all the torches going out and you think that's fucking cool. That's how you show thousands yeah. of people dying in one go is a load of torches going out. Obviously, that's terrible military strategy it was to send people holding torches towards the enemy. It just didn't work. Yeah. And it was interesting because they did a proper trope, yeah. which is the riderless horses running back again because it was so dark. I'm going, is that a horse? <laughs> is it? Is that a bloke? Is that is a headless? someone with two coconuts? What is that? Is that a motorbike? <laughs> that would have been great because yeah. they've done Monty Python jokes in that show before. Have they? Yeah, they did a bit where a bloke is being taunted by a knight and it's a trans of the taunting knight from Monty Python. I, I'm enjoying how much I hate Jon Snow now. That's my favourite thing to do, is, is what horrible... Uh, there's a really... Dis- uh, Charles Bukowski in one of his books describes a character as being cunt-struck, which is a really horrible way of describing someone being in love with a woman. But at the same time, it's perfectly applied to Jon Snow. <laughs> as in he's sort of gone terrible since he met a nice girl who's his auntie. Spoiler. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I was very fond of my aunt, but, you know... <laughs> Did she have dragons? No, <laughs> she was, she was really lovely, and she liked Rod Stewart and used to wear leopard, used to wear tiger skin pants. I say pants, I mean trousers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you've gone so American since you wrote All My Colours Without You. Oh uh, no. no. I was going to say, did you do much research of big, being because it's set in the seventies in America and it's got that very fantastically testosterone seventies writer vibe. Well, I had a few things in my head. One, Stranger Things was on telly. Right. So that was easy. And the thing I don't tell people, I say, oh, I listen to this and that. I listen Mm. to the Stranger Things soundtrack, even though it's not quite the right year, but it was good background music. I listened to a lot of John Carpenter because I thought, you know, if it's a book, it's Stephen King. If it's a film, it's John Carpenter. Though Mm. it isn't quite. Um, No, I used to be married to someone who lived literally in that part of the world, Ah. which is... um, near DeKalb and Aurora in Illinois. They're kind of yeah, small. Very unglamorous bit of Unglamorous, yeah. 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 And it was great. I'd say to people, oh, I'm going to the States for three weeks. <laughs> like, oh, it just sounded fantastic. And it was just the countryside. to be yeah. the equivalent of going to Norfolk. And I loved, I loved it there because there was nothing. But, you know, go for a drive, grain silo, nothing, barn, nothing, church, nothing, another barn. And there'd be miles. And there were no landmarks except things that people had built. Yeah. And... But it sort of feels like the, the animations run out. 
There's a bit in a Christopher Priest novel when a character goes in, realizes they're in a simulation. Yeah, when they get to the edge. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think the line I had was like, it was like God had run out of things to put in That's America. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I want to talk about the soundtrack because uh, you said you mentioned you listened to all the sort of horror film uh, soundtrack, but I also know because we have a shared love of a certain kind of music, yes. <laughs> particularly one artist. Particularly one art. When I was, when I used to go to that part of the world, Illinois. You turn on the radio, and even though it was the early 21st century, you'd still hear Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, Boston Sticks, Kansas, Meatloaf. Yeah. And this brilliant FM radio that only works in America. You can only have these epic, empty songs in an epic, empty landscape. Mm. It doesn't work in the city. Um, but apart from Mexican polka, which was quite common <laughs> because of the Mexican community, yeah, you'd hear these songs, and they were amazing. And when you've heard Carry On My Wayward Son by oh. Kansas, significant name, or More Than a Feeling by Boston, or Bad Out of Hell in that context, it's, yeah. it's wonderful. It's and so, for copyright reasons, I had to take most of the names out. But I think it does That's contain the phrase, like a bat out of hell. Yes. I, I, I sort of applauded gently to myself when I was reading that. Uh, yeah, the, 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 that kind of music, uh, particularly Meatloaf um, and the music of Jim Steinman, but uh, also Toto and, and stuff. Uh, the, the thing I love about them, uh, and I, I'm also writing something with a, with a certain kind of male protagonist, and I have a playlist that's very similar to the All My Colours oh, playlist right. that you made. No, I'm going to send it to you because yeah, the overlap is astonishing. Uh, because it's, it's a very particular kind of uh, masculine energy that is a lot of feelings without really saying what the feeling is. It's more than a feeling, as Boston would say. It's uh, my, my thing with a lot of it is farm prog. That, you know, British <sighs> prog rock is made by posh boys yeah. and wannabe. But in America, they like the music. But they lived on farmland. They lived in the Midwest. So mm. Kansas are better than Genesis, even though all their songs are terrible. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a strange music because it's rock, but it's not rocky. There's no sex. There's no energy. Everything's produced beautifully. It sounds amazing. Oh, that's interesting. But it's very bollockless, to use a word, that's except for meatloaf. I was going to say, yeah, because meatloaf is just soaked in sex. It's like the bat out of hell is essentially a sort of randy teenage boy in his bedroom thinking oh. how great it will be when he finally gets to have sex in a car next to a lake. And then and just, then Jim Steinman gently saying, no, actually, it's not going to be all that. But praying but, for the end of... I mean, we could... Could we just talk about Paradise by the oh, Dashboard let's, Light oh, for an please. hour? For longer than the song, which is 10 longer minutes than, and 51 seconds, I think. It's like just such... I mean... <sighs> And we've both seen Bat Out of Hell the musical more times than anyone yeah, on it. earth. We've seen it a lot. So good. They do Paradise by the Dashboard like so And they do it really well. They do it as a kind of rocky horror comedy moment, but it's also poignant. Yeah, because they're a middle-aged couple remembering how they lost their virginities to each other. And, that, and there's a real car on stage. And yeah. And the anger of that line, I'm waiting for the end of time to end my time with you. And when you first hear it, you think, what a funny song. And you listen to it. Mm. And it just should be called, I fucking hate you. Yeah. I've... I Brackets, I hate you too. <laughs> brackets. Uh, some, we've been told we have to stay together because of society. Because of a gym time. If you only thought, you could thought, yeah. actually, we don't have to get married. It's only, we've only had a shag. Yeah, but it was, well, I mean, he's sort of setting it in a fictional 50s, isn't he? Or, yeah. you know, whenever it was in a giant car and you, uh, yeah, you married the person you lost your virginity to and then hated them. <laughs> To the point where you use a lot of knife metaphors about fucking them. Oh, knives, yeah. <laughs> Glowing like the metal on the edge of a knife. Oh, it's a great line. Yeah. Uh, I like that we're both just thinking about a song. Really. If you, like, if you I mean, tune into the no, theatre podcast, no... we're not scared of meatloaf. We just want to talk about meatloaf. I mean, I think the imagery alone for meatloaf and Bad Out of Hell is enough to get warrant it being a uh, conversation topic for a podcast about spooky things. My meatloaf in three words is somewhat by Vampire Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then we have the episode title. Yeah. Yeah. I like this because you are a music journalist and I like that when you're talking about something that you genuinely are in love with, yeah. you don't bring in any of the kind of academics about it. It's just, it's great and I love it and it makes me feel things. Well, it's, That's I mean, what music should do. As I may have said before, but in that sitcom Saxondale with Steve Coogan, mm. which was a good show, the one thing that wrong with it was they made him talk like a music journalist. He'd always go, Genesis, excellent prog rock combo. He's like, no, roadies don't. Roadies say things like, I would do her. He <laughs> you know, if you ask about a band, they would say things like, selfish fuckers. Yeah. So that was the only, but yeah, if you love music, you just, I mean, me and my music journalist friends mostly used to go, fuck off, is that a good song? You know, or that's great, you're an idiot. <laughs> so we didn't talk like rock journalists in films. Yeah. Great Big Owl. What? Great Big Owl. Stop saying that. What about Great Big Owl? It's a family of podcasts. Ooh. Who's in this family? Well, there's Rule of Three. That's us. <laughs> there's Brian and Roger. Hi, Roger. It's Brian. There's the The One Show Show. There's oh, nowhere else nice. you would find a, a four or five minute film about Pine Martins. Yes. Without a sight of one Pine Martin at all in the film. There's Barry and Angelos. Oh, uh, gooch, gooch, chooch. Yeah. Remember that lovely one. And there's Smirsh Pod. Could you eat first? I think we know. <sighs> well, I know. I don't know if I want to eat Lazenby. Basically, look for Great Big Owl on your pod, what's it? Good idea. Have we got a sting? Owls don't sting. Great Big Owl. How do you sort of get into the headspace of sort of writing like really nasty stuff? Is that quite freeing? Do you wince? Is it awful? Well, it's just writing, you know, yeah. it's like, okay, in this, you know, it's like when you mow the lawn, you don't think, oh, I've got to mow, mow, get in the headspace. It's like, right, I'm going to do a scene where somebody comes in who's an evil ghost and the other person doesn't know what's going on. And, oh, they don't want this person to talk. So what's the most direct? Oh, that's good. And yeah, it's, I mean, I'm a, I'm a very squeamish person. I don't really? watch horror films, uh-huh. um, apart from the obvious ones. So when I wrote this bit, I'm like, Ugh, I wouldn't want to read that. But that makes it even better yeah. if you're feeling a bit sick. Yeah. And, yeah, there's loads of blades in it. Ugh, blades are creepy. Yeah, so had, yeah, there's a, there is a lot of blades in it. And um, I'm going to lift something I heard you say at your book reading the other day when you were talking about your, your relationship with... Um, uh, bla- uh, hacksaw blades, which yeah. feature quite prominently in the book. Hacksaw blades is a re- like the metal on the edge of a knife. But yeah, you have a you, why the th- the theme of hacksaw blades in the book? Because yeah, because when I got divorced the first time, I mean the only time shit, I just had this idea of you know not wanting to get married again, and I'm looking at your wedding ring and thinking, well, if you didn't have a ring finger, then you couldn't 
get married again. It wasn't very logical. Mm. And I wrote a short poem on about it on my phone and couldn't think of anything to do with it. And then it was like, I need a scene. I need the opening scene of the book. The book inside the book mm. has to be an incident. And I thought of this and thought, well, so it's not me. It's a woman. And she goes into, and, oh, and, yeah, so it's a hacksaw. And it was just, a, it wasn't a coincidence, mm. but it could have been anything. But it just seemed that she would go into a hardware store and make a request. And the obvious thing would be, and a hacksaw was more fun than a knife, because horror films are more about mm. chainsaws and sawing. There's even a film called Saw. Yeah. Knives are kind of nice and clean. Mm. And this was just horrible. Well, it's domestic, isn't it? It's mundane. Yeah. And you can go into a hardware store and ask for one. And Also, there's something about, I mean, I've been cutting myself accidentally for years. I used to make model aeroplanes. And last week, I nearly did something horrible to my hand with a cheese grater. Oh. See, there's something that... Yeah, that's yeah. very David. It's very, it's very the domestic meets the um, meets 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 the horrifying. The very sort of David Lynchian kind of There's that's what makes it more terrifying. Dropping if, a Le Creuset lid on your foot, I did once, oh. and there was something about the middle classness of it that really made it worse as an injury. Like I'm not allowed to complain because I owe some Le Creuset. Yeah, if you just said it was, if you said a lid, people are like, oh, and they just imagine that you know car disc hubcap yeah. sound, but it's not so. I have to imagine me going to TK Maxx and rummaging around looking for the discounted Le Creuset. Going, I've made it to the middle classes, finally. When you go on Twitter, you have to edit what you said. Oh, because someone will tell you off. I a heavy object, yeah. And I'll yeah. be like, oh, hark it, the Queen of England. Mm, you're fording lids. An, yes. And lid for one saucepan. A lid has fallen on your foot. <laughs> oh, my, a Le Creuset. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, your gossamer digits did not survive. <laughs> Some people can't afford feet. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's a going back to what you were saying about um, cutting off the ring, which is just I love the absolute darkness of. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry for your for your divorce that you went through. It sounds ter- uh, awful, but you're in a happier place now. I, oh yes. Human hope. Um, but there's a what it made me think of is that there's a Stephen King short story. I have to go back to the one um, called Quitters Inc where a man tries to give up smoking by going to a sort of shadowy agency. It's a short... I can't remember which collection it's in, one of the short stories. And he goes to a... Goes to this agency uh, to help give up smoking. It's very shadowy. Someone slips him a card and, and it costs a fortune and they're very sort of vague about w- what will happen if you, you know, they said, you just, you just, all you have to do is just not smoke from now on. And this bloke's like, well, I, oh, yes. yeah. And, he, uh, and he, he sort of, he absolutely doesn't believe that he sort of walks away being quite grumpy that, that there's I no remember. process. And actually what they do is they very systematically do terrible things to him. And then I think his, there's a pet and then his wife. Every time he starts smoking, to the and and he can't break the um, the cycle of them doing it. He just has to. All he has to do is just not smoke. Yeah. And then at the end of it, it you know, he's grateful because he's his wife is grateful, and uh, 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 and I read that when I was a teenager and every single time I've been through a terrible breakup I always thought it would be great if you could pay someone to do terrible things to you every time you tried to get back in touch with your ex or made some stupid decision I may have written a script a few times I think it's basically every script I've ever written is quitters ink what if you could get an agency to come in and do horrible things to you if you made bad choices like smoked or called your ex or sent that email you didn't mean to or <laughs> there's i love that there's a bit in um i never finished reading it so if i'm on, if anyone's slagging mm. me off on twitter it doesn't count but yeah in um confessions of an english opium eater by mm. de quincey he tells this great story that coleridge 
the, the poet, I have to say that in case people think I mean the wrestler, <laughs> Coleridge was trying to give up opium and basically he kept going into the pharmacist, getting mm. more opium, going, oh no, what have I done? I'm such a dick. Mm. So he hired a man to stop him going into pharmacies. And of course what happened was the bloke with the college would go, fuck off and attack him. Yeah. What a thankless job. You just go, right, here we go. Oh, just stop hitting me. I want some oak, go away. <laughs> You've got one job. That's so, great. Yeah. Yeah, it's your one, and you just think maybe you should hire someone bigger to just knock him out. Yeah, that would be really. Yeah, I'm sure there's a like. Yeah, everyone's got a price. I'm sure you could find someone like what's it called, Gumtree? Especially Crazeless. in like <laughs> the beating. 18th century. Yeah, someone well, suppose, sit on you till you stop taking opium. I suppose the problem is it's like crossing. You know, you hire someone and they're like. What did you hit me for? I thought you were going to a pharmacy. Yeah. No, I was just scratching my nose. Sorry, I thought you were about to get up and go into a... You just, wanted, you just hit me. Makes yeah, you think. well, that's, that's act two, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> when, you're, when, you're, um, when your opium bouncer turns I and just enjoys a, punching you in the face too much. It's a great Mitchell and Webb show. David Mitchell as Coleridge, because he always plays Toffs, and mm. Robert Webb as the slightly more oiky... No, well, I want to talk to you about sketch writing, because oh, okay. it's, you know, you obviously uh, have a prestigious uh, writing record we've written on all the things that everyone who's listening to this loves um, but it's quite weird when you pull up your IMDB page like all IMDB pages it's full of sort of vague lies and inaccuracies and yeah. I like I think my favourite one on yours is that TV Burp you wrote one episode of which I know you worked on it for years and years and years but I've got the credit on that yeah. it's also known as Knitted David Quantic which makes me so yes. happy because they did an episode where everyone was a knitted character of course Fantastic. Yeah, that's one for the dads. So a thing, but a thing we talk about, <laughs> including me, <laughs> one for the dad. Yeah, I'm quite daddish. Uh, uh, you were involved with the brass eye. Well, lots of brass eye, but yeah, the pedophile special. special. I th didn't write um, any. No, Chris, you didn't write the pedophile special. I no, no. This is we worked on it. Me and Jane worked mm, on it. Jane, Jane Bussman. Yeah. And um, yeah, after the launch, Chris said, "You haven't got anything in the show, but because you were really loyal, something like that." Mm. Um, I gave you a credit. And the thing is, me and Jane think we want wrote, we wrote one idea, which was Thousand Pedophile Island, <laughs> which was the, um, not game show, whatever they're called, reality show, yeah. where they put a thousand pedophiles on an island. Mm. And we both think we came up with that idea separately. But yeah, I mean, Mike, I was really lucky with credits because I'm like Flashman or something. And I've got a lot of credits for shows where I had one joke or yeah. no jokes. Like the day-to-day, -day, I can... Two things, me and Stephen Wells wrote. There's a cat on a shelf in war. And Stephen, I didn't even get the second one, Stephen wrote, Steve Coogan puts his hand on Rebecca Front's arse. <laughs> Which is a great TV moment. Yeah. Just at the end of as they're walking away, he just puts his hand on her bum. But yeah, so I'm personally, you know. But you did write on Brass Eye. Wrote on Brass Eye so, proper. And jam? Jam. I like jam best. Jam, because it's horrible, as you say. Yes. Cause it's. I mean, we'd go to the pub with Chris, and he would go, I've got an idea. And you'd just go... But I think he liked us because we just go, okay. And Jane, mm. who's just sick, would just go, what if X, Y, or Z? Mm. Jane's the one who came up with the idea of cake being a massive size of a plate pill. Fantastic. Which yeah. makes it, takes it into another dimension. Yeah. It would just be quite an ordinary, but because it's so big. Yeah. And, you know. Like a big wheel of cheese. Looks quite, was, looks quite delicious, yeah. It does. You think, I'd like some cake. I think Jane just said, it should look like a cake. Yeah. And, yeah. But I'm really and I think my, my, again, major contribution to that show was the one where, oh, can't, Amelia, Amelia Bullmore. Yeah. Well, there's a scene where they just see her sat behind a desk and she just says, I can't feel my cock. <laughs> and we wrote, I, we, I wrote that as just something to make Chris laugh in a list of jokes. And that's what we got in. 
adapted promo film for VD Care, which was quite vile. It was about exploding penises. <laughs> and a running theme in Chris Morris's running work. Running theme in Chris, the yeah. gush in Chris Morris's yeah. work. I just, it was just such a brilliant, because I, you know, there's, again, there's two t- people who think that comedy should just be funny mm. and it doesn't matter if, you know, it's Mrs. Brown Boys and there's people who think that comedy, like everything, should move on. Mm. And I just thought there's never been anything. Then welcome. Mm. Ooh, astonishing sod ape. Welcome. In jam. first thing that frightened me, I remember being frightened of, we used to go, we went to the cinema in Plymouth, the Drake Cinema had a model of the Golden Hind outside, and I was scared of Bambi's mother's death, spoilers, yeah, my- because obviously that was horrible. Yeah. And I watched Doctor Who and the Daleks, the movie, without being frightened at all, which tells you what a pile of shit that was. <laughs> Fucking hell, they couldn't even scare a six-year-old. <laughs> and the worst moment was seeing The Sound of Music. And that song, I'm 16 going on 17, yeah. was my first intimation of mortality. And I, and I, oh, my God, <laughs> people get older. And I had to be taken out of the cinema because of <laughs> I'm 16 going on 17. I mean, th- there's a lot about that film that is, I find just, it's generally got an air of creepiness to it. But that, yeah, that song is, and there's something quite clockwork about the song where they're sort of like toys singing, am I going, am I going mad? No, I mean, it's, <laughs> just, it's, a, great, it's a great movie because yeah. it is basically about, and an anarchist, you know, redeeming an authoritarian who weirdly isn't a Nazi. And you think, I'm sure that's because it's a true story. But you mm. think, really? If one guy in this film you'd pick for the Nazi, yeah. it would be Mr. Authoritarian Clockwork Children. <laughs> yeah, with, with his beautiful flaxen hair. But um, the creepiest thing in the world ever right. is the credits to the man in the high castle on TV. Because it's set in a world, right, where the yeah. Nazis were on the war. Yeah. And the theme music is Edelweiss. And you think, oh, lovely German traditional song. It's not... It's written for the sound of music. So what having this as the theme basically means the Von Trapps were executed. That's my theory. I always think Tomorrow Belongs to Me from Cabaret is from the sound of music as well because it's got that same air about it. it a, again, that's in Man in the High Castle, which is, is a bit it? weird. But yeah, God, I love... It's a weird thing when you're growing up in the 70s and mm-hmm. you I think, oh, I love Tomorrow Belongs to Me. It's like, <laughs> go Hitler. You're like, what? Yeah. But yeah. It's a lot of art. Made in the 70s that was made by people who lived through the war. So they're sort of dealing with that in different, unusual ways. Yeah, and it's, it's I mean, it's a, a cliche now, but it's everything from cabaret to dad's army. Mm. But even punk, and it's like people going, oh, punk's wearing swastikas. It's because the best way to wind up your parents, mm. who'd been in a real war, was nothing to do with, you know, the Holocaust. It was just going, aha, Nazis are great. Yeah. Because you'd, you know, you had someone killed by them. Well, you're such a baby. I'm 16. What's such a baby about that? You wait, little girl, on an empty stage for fate to turn the light on. Your life, little girl, is an empty page that men will want to write on. To write on. 
16, going on 17, baby, it's time to think. Tell me about um, Superboy. Well, this is something I've never told anyone before. Exclusive. Um, <clears throat> and it's quite old. But yeah, when I was a kid, in the olden days, we used to get superhero comics mm. from the market in black and white, because that's how they sold them in Britain. And I used to read Superboy, and Superboy was quite anodyne and quite cartoony. But there was a strip where he kept meeting all these flying villains and monsters, and it transpired that <clears throat> they were all... Another superhero called Supremo, another boy who was dressed up as monsters to give Superboy something to fight. It's all a bit odd. But what creeped me out was that Supremo, he wasn't a rival superhero. He'd been given superpowers by his dad and he had a, a life, he had a fatal illness. He had a terminal illness. <laughs> I'm looking him up now, yeah. And it was really horrible, basically. And he died at the end. Oh. And the thing was, he'd been given these, the way I saw it when I was about seven was he'd been given these powers to make his, the end of his life better. And this kind of warped in my head, the idea that if you got something good in your life, like success, you would die. <laughs> and ever since then, I'm quite, I'm not, I'm serious about this. Ever since then, I have thought that if I became successful or famous or got superpowers, I would die. Wow. Yeah. Because of this, well, obviously this is tapping into something greater than this comic book character. I think but... so. I mean, there is a kind of Victorian morality to it that, mm. yeah. He, you don't deserve nice things. You don't deserve nice things. And if you get nice things, you will die. This kid's done nothing to deserve it. And yeah, I've never thought about it before. I've never actually said it out loud. Oh, it, it is a bit of a leap from the actual comic, which was not actually called You Will Die If You Do Well. Well, I, I mean, his, he's pretty much defined by his illness because the first line of him on on the a comic wiki page is um, he was a weakling as a result of a rare disease in inverted commas a weakling <laughs> yeah. that's nice isn't it a bit judge yeah. pencil he was a weakling as a result of a rare disease he contacted when visiting Hong Kong with his uncle Hong Kong famous land of rare <laughs> disease and that's when you, he caught it as well yeah so, off a Chinaman <laughs> off a, you know, yeah I mean there's so many questions that oh. uncle well I mean Alan Vell is an inventor of genius and an idolizer of Superboy. His uncle developed Super Formula Supremo. His yeah. uncle, I think, who is an inventor, who is yeah. it's all a bit confused. Yeah, his uncle's an inventor and gives him a serum, I think, which gives him superpowers. Mm-hmm. Yes, super strength and vulnerability to assist Superboy in several heroic feats before tragically succumbing to the disease. Superboy decided himself as Super strong dragon creature. Supremo heroically fought him and beat the creature, but died as a result from his disease. He died as a <laughs> hero! Exclamation mark. It's just... Yeah, and this is the one thing in the entire history of DC Comics that has stayed with me. If they ever do... A, by the way, if you're listening, Hollywood, if they ever do a Supremo movie... Oh, my God. ...about the weakling who got a disease in Hong Kong and died <laughs> because he wanted to be a TV writer... Because he's... It's a little bit like that um, that Bill Hicks stand-up about well, why not get the terminally ill to be stuntmen. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> because, you know, you get some really good special effects out of them and what a way to go, you know. Yeah, being, but he's trying to Being ignore... kicked to death by Jackie Chan, you know. Yeah, I mean, it depends... I don't know. You'd need quite fit stuntmen. I mean, basically, if you had someone who was in the last stages of Crohn's disease, it wouldn't. You'd be like, why is Jackie Chan kicking that <laughs> obviously sick person? <laughs> but no, it's weird because again, age. I'm obsessed with because I have small children. I mean, seriously, mm. I have this thing of I don't mind dying, and then I think about my kids, mm. and then 
Because it used to fascinate me when you just see old people and they're quite happy and they go, oh, I don't mind going. You're like, I do mind going. <laughs> I don't, I'll cling on, you know, I'll be a head in a box. And then you get older and you think, yeah, I've done lots of stuff. And I mean, I'm a bit obsessed with age. Mm. Every time I get older, I would tell people how old I am, like a simpleton. <laughs> But yeah, and I, I read this thing in the paper that about the four ages, you know, which I'm, you know, somebody said it used to be youth, middle age, and old age, and now there's very old age as well. Mm. And <clears throat> yeah, there's so many people now I've come across who are in their nineties, and you think, mm. am I going to do that? Mm. You know, I'm fifty-eight next month. And you think, how near the end am I? So yeah, there's a. It's not a fear. Well, it's but a- I would be quite annoyed if I've dropped dead on the way home. Yeah. Narrator, he dropped dead on the way home. <laughs> How ironic. Um, I think, I mean, would you say that you're a sort of uh, an, an anxious person, a fearful person? Yeah, I'm anxious. I'm not fearful. I'm very anxious, I think. Not super anxious. I'm anxious. I sound mm. like a Woody Allen character now. I find it very cathartic to talk about anxiety with creative people who I admire. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a relaxer. I always think, oh, I like relaxing, but mm. it's like whenever I do sit down with a book in a day, in the day, mm. I suddenly become aware of every hair on my body, <laughs> you know, is doing something, and I can feel the shape of it. And I gave up drinking as well, and it, mm. you suddenly realise that your social life was basically, oh, I can have a drink if I go out, and I don't want to go down that route. But yeah, I don't know what to do with my life when I go out. <laughs> I don't know what to do with my hands, yeah. or my life, and I find it really hard to have conversation. And the only time. I understand that thing about performers when people go, oh, yeah, you can only be all right on stage, you know, but with people, it's like, I do a podcast. <laughs> Imagine if I went home and had a conversation with my family like this, they'd just run away. <laughs> like, can we watch Paw Patrol now? Or are you just <laughs> going to talk about yourself again? Um, writing's good. Yeah. And listening to music. Just that thing of doing something else when you eat a meal. It's amazing. I go out with a friend who's quite nervy mm. and sometimes quite difficult afternoons. And then if we go and have something to eat, it's like, oh, I can relax. It's like this, your brain, part of your brain is a dog that has to be thrown bits of meat every two seconds <laughs> to stop it yapping. <laughs> Do you have that thing of feeling like you're doing the wrong thing most of the time? I find that writing is the one time I I don't feel like I should be doing something else. Me, it's mm. just, I, I just think that nobody cares what I'm doing, so I might as well do things... I used to say, I used to read the Jennings books when I was a kid, mm. who were basically sort of prep school boy. And I hated, I love the books, but I hated Jennings because he was always getting into scrapes and they were meant to be funny, but they just left me jangling with, I would hate to do this, to have, you know, lost my socks or forgotten to do my homework. I was like, why is this meant to be funny? <laughs> Is there anything you'd like to plug? Anything I'd like to plug, or just all my colours, really. I'm yeah. just thinking of ideas. I'm at a sort of stage of thinking. I'm working on some things that I can't mention at the moment because I signed an NDA. Yes. I thought of a good joke the other day. I accidentally signed an NWA, which means I can't talk about it, but I can rap about it. <laughs> I must put that on Twitter later. I'll, you can have that one. You can have that you one. Can have that one. I have that one of your skits. Oh, God, yes. I mean, Twitter is a fucking cesspit. Why, why do we still do it? Because it's addictive, because it's instant gratification. If you get a joke, because it's likes, you get loads of likes. Is that it? We get to meet people and talk, you know. It's so like this week, I talk, I've been followed by Carl Howman from Brushstrokes what? this week, which is great. I talked Michael Stark from Coronation Street mm. and Sinbad in. You talk to all these amazing people. Um, people like your jokes. 
but also what I really I mean I like being rude to people <laughs> if somebody's rude you know it's like Naja Shireen was on Rule of Three podcast yeah. talking about smash hits and somebody made the mistake of going, be loads better. And it's like, right, you've been rude to oh, my friend. That was a f- all- it's always loving when someone's unequivocally wrong. There's yeah. no grey area like there sometimes is on Twitter. Well, maybe they might have a point, but that guy was such a dick. Yeah, he's, <laughs> it's not just being wrong, it's just being yeah. unpleasant about it. Yes, he didn't being wrong have- and unpleasant about it. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, okay, let's have a... And he was fu- And it's always good when they fight their corner. mm you know, it's like the late Jeremy Hardy said, we got heckled and he used to go, oh, let's, it's time, you want to play, do you? <laughs> and it's always that sense of someone's going to have a go. Yeah, it's kind of pathetic, really. So we've gone from like Twitter's a cesspit to isn't it nice to insult people in three seconds. <laughs> That's why it's a cesspit, because of people well, like no, us. Yeah, well, I mean, I, God, I, 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 I can't engage on it these days because I'm so obsessed by the idea that everyone isn't real because they're probably a sock puppet or a bot or a, the equivalent of setting off two speaking dolls against each other so they were scream into each other's mouths forever. <laughs> terrifying. And then there's the parody accounts when you realise you've just got really... Someone will do something like, you absolute wanker, and someone will go, Have, read their description. And it's like, oh, it's a comedy account. I yeah, feel like a knob. What a horrifying waste of your time on Earth. <laughs> your parody account, it calls you a wanker. Oh, God. I think I might set up a parody account. I think there are people who've ended up having arguments with themselves. Yeah. They've forgotten that they set up an account or a bot. Oh, yeah. I think I might write a thing about someone who sets up loads of bots and accounts and ends up dead, but their bots still shouting at each other. What if your bot... What if what's left of you? Yeah. It's like when Rowan Atkinson dies, in millions of years' time, people just know him as Mr. Bean the cartoon. (laughs) And there'll be a statue of, said Rowan Atkinson, and it'll just be the Mr. Bean cartoon man. And what will yours be? There what won't what be, be your one. statue? An idiot. A statue of an idiot. <laughs> a statue of somebody who's got the wrong photograph in the review paper of the Telegraph. Nice. A misattributed picture of a German professor who's got a stupid face. <laughs> and one day they'll find out and they'll change the label to stupid face German professor. <laughs> and my name will be unknown. Well, so it's so 24. <laughs> it's a dream come true. <laughs> All right, David Quantic, thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. a great big owl yes they make this podcast yeah but not just this podcast you're shitting me name some others well there's trolled we had luciana berger and gary lineker coming on oh yeah and there's crime club should get done for that yeah there's the fear it's a kid's show they really really scared me there's always there thanks very much because i would never have gone oh. down howard's way oh. had you not asked me there's friends with friends shoving a funnel in joey's mouth and rachel pours fat down yeah. <laughs> and there's ask the nincompoops kids ask us the questions they want answered that's for kids we shouldn't have sworn earlier bollocks quick play the sting great